Laws in Space. I'm Tanya Hall, and joining me is James Denston, founder of Mobius Legal Group and general counsel at Tech Freedom. Welcome, James. Thank you, Tanya. Tell us about your tech background and explain what Tech Freedom does. So my tech background is I'm actually all self-trained. Um, I took a class in college on, uh, um, of e econometrics, which is sort of the mathematical side of eco economics. And for that, we had to learn how to program computers. And this is back in the IBM 360 days, uh, punch cards, and uh, programming in Fortran. Um, I then got into law school, thought I would go off to Wall Street and, and uh, be a tool. Uh, but then in my second year, I took the tax and corporation class. And by the way, my tax professor was Martin Ginsburg, uh, the, the late husband of, of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, but as good of a professor as he was, I was bored out of my mind. And so I, along with a, a classmate of mine, we actually programmed computer games uh, to keep my sanity while I was in law school. And then I decided I needed to find a subject area to practice law in that really interested me. I've always been interested in space. I'm what's known as an orphan of Apollo. I'm of the age where I watched Neil and Buzz walk on the moon and was promised that I too could go into space. And that of course was denied my generation. Um, and, and so I said, let's look at space law. And so I now in 37 years of practice as a walking, talking space lawyer and have loved every minute of it. So talk to us about that. Start off by summarizing the legal aspects of our national space strategy. Sure. So uh, in terms of the overall space strategy, um, on the one end of the spectrum, we as a nation have to abide by the international treaties. And I won't go into a space law 101 you know, lecture on what that is, but we have laws uh, uh, that govern outer space. And then we have our own domestic uh, laws that, that govern space. And until recently, you know, space has been really the domain of the government, NASA, um, except for in the telecommunications sector, which has always been private. Um, Congress set aside that aspect of space to be private from the very beginning. Uh, but more recently, as we've seen um, with SpaceX and Blue Origin and the private companies, is they're now taking a much more important role in outer space. And in fact, we can't get back to the moon in 2024 or 2028 or 2030 without a much larger participation uh, from the commercial sector than we did during the Apollo era. Without going into Space Law 101, as you called it, broaden yeah. the discussion to summarize international law and UN treaties and how US law is involved and maybe even overlaps. Sure, so, so the two fundamental things that you have to understand about the Outer Space Treaties is one is when they, were, when they came into being. So the, the, the Outer Space Treaty is from 1968. Um, and at the time, you know, the Cold War was in full bloom. And so the main goal of the Outer Space Treaty was to make sure that we didn't take our aggression and specifically didn't take nuclear weapons and put them in space. And so that's the whole backdrop of the Outer Space Treaty. But there are two really important components of that. One is that space is to be free uh, for access and use, and use, and that's important, for all mankind. Um, and two is nobody can own space. Uh, or any part of space. And that's the two issues that we as a country have had to deal with since we are one of the few really dominant space powers. 
The need to create a legal and regulatory framework for international operations and near-Earth orbit is, is pretty straightforward. What are the issues related to creating an Earth-based legal framework for other planets, asteroids, and comets? Yeah, so again, we have this, you know, the international level, we have to sort of agree, uh, you know, what we're going to do. Um, I think a really good example of what's going on right now in that debate is in, in 2015, Congress passed legislation for the first time to recognize that if somebody goes out to an asteroid, for example, and mines that asteroids and brings back the, you know, the, 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 the stuff that they get from that, that they can claim ownership in that. And that's a that's a big step and that's a big debate um, because, of course, under Article 2 of the Outer Space Treaty, you can't own space or any part of it. But the argument is that um, once you have mined you know, the, the, the regolith off of an asteroid, that changes the character of it from no longer being an asteroid to being a product. And therefore, you can own that. And so far, the United States has, has made that move. Uh, Luxembourg. Uh, which is an up-and-coming space-faring country, even though they don't have any launch capabilities, um, has adopted that same, same regime. And there are a number of other countries that look like they're going to fall in line. Meanwhile, we've got some other countries that are saying, no, no, you can't. You, you can't even own what you mine um, off of asteroids. So that's kind of an ongoing debate, but that really is a prime example of how you know, the interests of, uh, of countries can differ, um, you know, uh, across, across the spectrum. Uh, but of course, from the United States standpoint, you know, we know that in order to access the resources of space, which are, you know, nearly infinite, um, and if you look at sort of the valuation of just the, the precious metals in those asteroids, they're trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. I mean, we literally could quadruple instantly the, the Earth's economy simply by moving out into space and beginning to use the resources there. And of course, the other good part of that um, is if you mine stuff on Earth uh, in space, it means you're not mining stuff on Earth, which means you're not doing all that ecological damage to, you know, to the earth by strip mining the moon. I much, would much rather strip mine the moon and strip mine an asteroid than I would, you know, burn down a rainforest and strip, and strip mine that down here. So in, in that sense, it's really interesting because often, you know, ecologists and, you know, the environmental movement and the space movement are at odds. And yet we really should be working together because we have the same goal, which is to have, you know, a, a clean of earth as possible, but at the same time, expand the resources we have access to and, and increase the quality of life of every human being on the planet. Along those lines, as business leaders begin taking advantage of the commercialization of space, what legal and regulatory trends should they keep in mind? So uh, I've talked about this a lot um, and I've written extensively on it. The biggest problem that we face in the United States is that we have a regulatory regime which is stovepiped. It's all these different silos um, and it was all constructed in the 1970s and 1980s. And the problem is in the 1970s and 1980s, we anticipated that we would only have a dozen launches a year, uh, which would you know, launch mainly geostationary satellites, maybe a few remote sensing satellites. The problem now is, the good news now is, of course, we're launching on almost a weekly basis. Pretty soon, SpaceX is going to be that or more. And, and once Blue Origin gets up and, and, and launching, we're going to be launching every two, three, four days. 
But the problem is before you can launch, you know, you've got to get to launch a rocket, you've got to get authority from the, the Federal Aviation Administration, FAA. To use frequencies, you've got to get you've got to get a frequency allocation and a license from the FCC. If you're going to look back at Earth, you have to get a remote sensing license from, from NOAA. All of those systems are designed to take three to four years. And of course, now we have people literally building CubeSats that start on the back of a napkin and are flying within four to five months. And so our entire regulatory scheme in the United States has got to be fast-tracked. We've got to put it into hyperdrive. Um, because I, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many clients I have right now who are so frustrated um, because the, the time delays that they're facing with being able to do anything in space. And unfortunately, what that's also doing is it's sending people overseas. So we've got, we've got U.S. companies that would love to do business and be licensed in the United States, but the U.S. regulatory agencies can't move fast enough. So that's why they're going to Luxembourg. That's why they're going to Isle of Man. All these places that have more streamlined processes for getting authorization to do that. And so we could be missing out, even though we're by far the leaders in, in, in space technology, we could, we could lag behind in developing a space economy simply because we can't license people fast enough. And that's a huge problem. Certainly is. James Dunstan, founder of Mobius Legal Group and general counsel at Tech Freedom. If somebody wants to connect with you, James, maybe they've got some questions about how to proceed in the commercialization of space or, or about some of your other work. How can they do that? So the best way to reach me is by email, J-D-U-N-S-T-A-N at techfreedom, T-E-C-H-F-R-E-E-D-O-M dot org. That's an O-R-G. That's not a dot com. Thanks again, James. And thank you, Tanya. Of course. Find more of my interviews right here or at tanyahall.net. Thanks for watching.